special welcome also. I know over uh, Christmas season that many uh, family and friends come to visit. So if you're a visitor today, I'm not going to do anything embarrassing. If you just kind of wave, any family, friends visiting, any visitors, as the announcement said, you're so welcome. Thank you for coming to Hatfield today. It's good to have you with us. The title of my message today is, Whom Shall We Trust? Whom Shall We Trust? Um, as we were praying, actually last Sunday before the service, one of the pastors shared just something they felt the Lord gave them out of Isaiah chapter 9, and I thought to pick up on that this morning as God was directing me to prepare. And so if you can, turn in your Bibles and devices to Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll read a few verses there. Last week, we spoke about the fact that real change always starts in the heart. Real change starts in the heart. But change implies trust, that we can trust the change that we're moving towards, perhaps the people that are involved in the process. And as we enter the Christmas season, it's also an opportunity for us to celebrate and to contemplate what God has done in our lives and how we can stand in Him. We contemplate and remember the faithfulness of God, the fact that God keeps His promises and, the, and that we can trust Him. So my main text this morning is in Isaiah 9, and we're going to just read verse 6, and then we'll look at some of the context and, and what's going on around this text. This is a well-known Christmas scripture, and in fact, when I felt the Lord told me to speak on it, I thought, well, that's nice and familiar for Christmas. And then as I did some work in the week preparing, I realized there's a lot more surrounding the scripture in depth uh, into the context and into the time when these words were spoken. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 reads, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And those are some of the names that describe Jesus who is to come later. And so as we read in the book of Isaiah, to get proper perspective on this passage, we actually need to go back about two chapters to the beginning of chapter 7, and we're not going to read that uh, all this morning, but I'll talk you through it as we can. And we find the nation of Israel in quite a dark time, in a gloomy time, in a precarious situation. The world power in this day was Assyria. They were particularly cruel. Uh, we're talking here about 700 years or so before Jesus, 700 and something before Jesus. And Assyria is coming and they're busy invading. What had happened in the history of Israel a couple hundred years earlier is that the whole nation had kind of split in two. Just after Solomon was king, uh, one of his, his sons, Jeroboam, and, Rehob and another gentleman, Rehoboam, divided the kingdom into what was often called the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Now, the northern kingdom was more populous and bigger than the southern kingdom. And generally, the northern kingdom didn't follow God well. The southern kingdom, which was often called Judah, when we read the prophetic writings, they often speak of them as Judah, they had good kings and bad kings. They had times of revival. And what's happening here is Ahaz is king, and the northern kingdom has aligned itself with the Syrian empire, um, not the Assyrians, the king of Damascus, Aram, is sometimes called the Syrians, the area of Syria today. And although Syria is dominating these two Subpowers, the northern kingdom and Syria, decide they want to try and invade Judah. And initially they fail, but then their alliance gets stronger and they start threatening the southern kingdom. They start threatening Ahaz's kingdom. And 
What happens is God sends Isaiah, the prophet, to Ahaz with a very clear prophetic word. He actually says to him, this threat, this threat of invasion that they're going to come and conquer you, it's not going to happen. God uses words like, it will not happen. But Ahaz is not a God follower. He doesn't walk after God while, in fact, he was an idol worshiper. He'd done some terrible things in in worshiping false gods. So Ahaz finds it difficult to trust God, but he gets this clear word from Isaiah, the prophet. And so God knows this, and God says to him, look, well, probably not in these words. I know this is difficult for you to understand, but to prove that this is me, you can ask for any sign. This is interesting. God offers this unbelieving king Ahaz, this unfaithful king Ahaz. He says, you can ask me any sign, and I will give it to you to prove that what I have said will happen, because God always keeps his promises. But Ahaz refuses this. He doesn't want to trust God. He actually goes a little pious and he goes, no, you know, I would never dream of asking God for a sign. And God says, but I told you to ask me for a sign. And then God goes into what's a well-known passage. He says, well, because you won't take a sign and you're not going to do what I've asked you to do, you're not going to be obedient, you're not going to trust me, I will send a sign ultimately. Isaiah 7, 14, virgin shall give birth, another famous scripture, virgin shall give birth. And she will bear a son, and his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so even though Ahaz proved faithless and unfaithful, God promises a greater deliverance than just the immediate threat that is facing Ahaz and his kingdom. God promises that one day I will send a savior. Even though you've proved faithless and there's going to be consequences to that, I will send a savior. He will come miraculously and you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God will be with you and your, pe- with your people in future, because that would happen later. It wouldn't be with Ahaz. And so fundamentally, what we find in the scripture as it starts out is there's a matter of trust involved. Who he is, Ahaz, going to trust. And what Ahaz then does is he decides to ignore the offer that God has given him, and he builds an alliance with Assyria, the, world empire, the powerful empire at the time, to help him stand against the Damascus and the northern kingdom, against the Assyrian, the Syrian and the northern kingdom. And he forms a, a human alliance to try and protect himself. An ungodly alliance is formed. And so he refuses to trust God. He turns away from trusting God. And because of this, the nation of Israel cannot fulfill its destiny. Israel was meant to be a servant nation in the world, a nation through whom God would show himself to all the other peoples of the world, and they won't trust him because their ruler won't trust him. And so Israel can't fulfill their purpose for God at that time. No trust, therefore the nation had no message, and therefore there was no hope for the people. No trust, no message, and no hope. Ahaz chooses man's ways and man's perspectives above what God has said to him. The scripture goes on and God in what's recorded for us in Isaiah 8 gives Ahaz a very clear warning. He says, because you've aligned with Assyria, this is not going to work in your favor. It's a bit like one of the commentators uses this analogy. He says, it's a bit like a a mouse making an alliance with a cat to destroy another mouse. What's the cat going to do in the end? It's going to take on. And so Judah, the southern kingdom here, is like a mouse 
building an alliance with Assyria to destroy the northern kingdom. And they do that. The Assyrians come and they protect Israel, the southern kingdom at this time. But then the next thing they do is they call Aazin and they say, here's a tribute you're going to pay. And they start oppressing the southern kingdom because now they've got power. They're the cat that's going to eat the last remaining mouse that's left. And Isaiah, even in chapter 8, God comes and he speaks to the prophet and he says, you have to trust me. I will walk you through this. I will set, I'll get you through this. But you have to trust me. But you see, until, if we, sorry, not until, if we put our trust in anything other than what God and what he says to us, ultimately, it's always going to end up disappointing us. Ultimately, it will always end up turning on us, just like Assyria turned on Israel after their temporary alliance. And so let's go back to Isaiah chapter 9. We want to pick up again, this time reading from verse 2, so we can see some of the context for our text that we read earlier this morning. And so what happens in Israel is they get overcome by darkness and gloom. They get oppressed. They're living in darkness and gloom. And through the prophet Isaiah, God comes and he starts promising hope, as God always does. When God comes and makes promises, there's always hope attached to it. And so God comes through Isaiah and he says to the people of Israel that have been in darkness now because of A.S.'s decisions, he says, verse 2, a people walking in darkness have seen a great light. I'm going to read and perhaps comment as I read. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in a land of deep darkness, like the nation of Israel was and would be for a time to come, a light has dawned. And then Isaiah, with tremendous amount of faith, he speaks about something God will do in the future as if it has already happened. Verse 3 says, you have enlarged the nation. Literally, you have multiplied the nation. You have made the nation great again. You have increased their joy. No one in Israel at this time, when Isaiah was speaking these words, had much joy. They were under oppression. They were under the yoke of the Assyrians. They were paying tribute. They were being exploited. Perhaps they had tears, as Mike read earlier from the ministry mic for us. They were in sorrow and despair. Perhaps they were wrestling. But God promises light. He increases their joy. And then there's two pictures he gives. The people will rejoice like at the harvest, where they've sowed, in faith, sowed faithfully for many years. A harvest will come. I don't know if you've ever reaped a harvest, maybe if you're not a farmer, but like a, where you've sowed in God and you've sowed in prayer and you've sowed into someone's life and that there's then been a harvest that comes, there's a reward that comes. That's a little joyful, isn't it? We find joy in what God does when he returns. And as warriors rejoicing in the plunder, when you've overcome, when you've won a battle of faith, you've overcome opposition in your life, there's joy that comes. So God promises light. God promises hope, even when there was none. It's important to see here is the light didn't come from the people. It didn't come from alliances and strategies that the kings and the people could have put in place. The light came because God promised it and God brought it. And so even though Ahaz has turned away from God, even though Ahaz has sinned, even though Ahaz has rebelled against God, that doesn't stop God from manifesting himself to the nation. And he gives these words of hope. It matters not what you've done in your life and the difficulties you find yourself in. God can manifest himself in your life. God can bring light 
where there is darkness. And where there is gloom and despair, God can bring joy. God is bigger. And so even though Ahaz has been unfaithful, there's a large opportunity here for God to prove himself trustworthy. And God loves doing that. Back into the text, chapter 9, verse 4. And yet God reminds them of how in the past, in their history, that they know he has been faithful to them. Verse 4 and 5 read, For as in the days of Midian's defeat, um, Gideon, you remember the story with Gideon with the 300 men where he overcomes the Midianites? God's reminding them of where he has proved faithful in the past, where he has given them victory. For as in the days of Midian's defeat with Gideon, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar that is across their shoulders and the rod of the oppressor God has broken. Verse 5 says, Every warrior's brute used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, sorry, will be, well, be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire. And so God carries on with this promise of hope that he gives and he says, you're under a yoke of oppression now and sin oppresses us. Sin bears us down. But in Jesus, God comes and he breaks the rod of oppression and the yoke of sin in our lives. That's why Jesus later on in history says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we trust in anything other than God, we find ourselves under a heavy yoke. If we live lives that are not pleasing to God, we find ourselves oppressed. And so God reminds them of how he's faithful. And then he also says, there's been war and there's turmoil and and it's going to get worse. But the warrior's boot and the garment soaked in blood will become fuel for the fire. They will come to an end. This tyranny you're experiencing, God will not replace with a new tyranny, with a new form of oppression, with a different yoke. He shatters the yoke. And he comes and he brings joy and he brings peace. And so God will end warfare. He will end what was oppressing the nation of Israel. He's not replacing one form of tyranny with another. Elsewhere, God speaks and he says, it's not by might and it's not by power. Because Ahaz chose might and power. He chose to align himself with the Assyrians to try and overcome his temporary problem. It's not by might. How does God accomplish this? How does his spirit work in us and through the earth and in people's lives? How does God accomplish this? We get to our text this morning, verse nine, chapter 9, verse 6. God accomplishes his plan to end tyranny, to end depression, to set his people free by sending a child who we know is Jesus. He takes the prophecy that he said in chapter 7, verse 14, that Emmanuel, God, will be, us, and he, be with us. And he says, verse 6, For unto us a child will be born, a son will be given. God gives, and that's one of the reasons... We've developed the tradition over Christmas of giving gifts because we mirror the generosity and the giving of God. And then it says about Jesus that the government will be on his shoulders. It's not Assyria. It's not the northern kingdom. It's not the enemies. They will not rule. The government will be on Jesus' shoulders. And he will be called four things, a wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. God fulfills his promises to the nation of Israel by sending his son. And here Jesus is contrasted as an ideal king. Unlike Ahaz, who couldn't trust God, who turned away from trusting God, God will send a king who is completely 
trustworthy. And he himself will come. And he will be to us a wonderful counselor. More literally, that can be translated, uh, one who, um, sorry, let me get this right. He's a wonder as a counselor, or he gives wonderful counsel. You see, when we face challenges and problems in life, when we have to stand, if we can turn to God, he will give us wonderful counsel. It's not the counsel based on human wisdom or human advice. It's not the counsel based on building clever alliances. It's not survivor. Okay? It's not about your alliance. It's about trusting God. He will give wonderful counselor, but not as man advises. In this sense, God is an extraordinary strategist. When we face challenges and problems in life, God is an extraordinary strategist. He can give us ways to solve our problems and challenges that we overcome and the temptations that we face that Vanna shared about earlier. He can give us a way out, which is beyond mere human wisdom, beyond our good ideas. God's wisdom is very different from our wisdom. Ahaz relied on military might and power to try and overcome his challenge. But God, through Jesus, if we read later in the book of Isaiah, like in chapter 53, God's wisdom is that in weakness, there is strength. Jesus comes as a suffering servant, and he overcomes sin. In death, there is life. In surrender, there is victory. When we surrender to God, and we put our trust in him, we find victory. Because Jesus is really the wonderful counselor, and he really does know best. It also says he's the mighty God, which is really t- relatively self-evident. God is strong enough to do what he has promised to do. When evil comes against you and you stand in the promises of God, he's strong enough to absorb all that evil until there's none left, and then he's even stronger to overcome evil. The book of Romans tells us, for those who love God, he works all things according to his purposes. He's working good in our lives. Mighty God is strong enough to do what he said he would do. He promises the nation deliverance. The king rejects it. And then God comes and he promises an even greater deliverance that Emmanuel will come and deliver us from sin. He is the mighty God and he is able to do everything he said he would do. The scripture also says here that he's the everlasting father. He's the father from beginning to end. He will not go away. He's the protector. As a father, he does not impose on his children, but he sacrifices for them. And we know that later from the life of Jesus. He comes as a child in contrast to might and to power. He comes vulnerable. He comes as one of us in the same manner, in the same fashion. And he loves us and he sacrifices for us. So he's the father who loves us and protects us. It also speaks and it says that he's the prince of peace. And so he does not come with greater oppression and more might. He comes, and he not only comes in peace, but he establishes peace in our lives. Later on in Isaiah, particularly from chapter 60 on, there's promises of a kingdom that will come and what that kingdom will be like. And that's a promise for us in future as well. This life is not so straightforward sometimes. But God is in us and through us establishing a kingdom. And a day will come when he comes back to this earth and he establishes a kingdom of justice and a kingdom of peace. 
We'll read a bit about that in the next verse. But he is the Prince of Peace, and he promises Israel that he will create a safe place for them through Christ who comes later. He will take care of their current oppression and their gloom and the distress that they are under. God comes and he promises hope. The last verse we're going to read this morning is in verse 7, towards the end of the, the section. He's the mighty, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Verse 7 concludes and it says, of the greatness of his government, some versions say, of the increase of his government, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And so even though the nation was in despair, there will be no end of the hope that is coming. And he, speaking of Jesus, will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness. Things will be just and they will be done in the right manner. And from that time on and forever, God will establish this kingdom. And then it says, the zeal of the Lord God Almighty will accomplish this. God will do this. Because when God makes a promise, God will fulfill it. His passion for us, his desire for us, his intense devotion towards us will ensure that the promises that God makes in our lives and this promise that he made to the nation of Israel will come true because God will accomplish it. And so Jesus will come. Isaiah speaks to the nation. He says that there will come a king to end all kings. Maybe Assyria will conquer you and Babylon will come and the Greeks will come. But Jesus will be born. We know from history 700 years later, and he will be the king that ends all kings. And so whom shall we trust? Whom shall I trust? I want to say this morning, we should trust Emmanuel. We should trust God with us. See, God comes and he promises hope in each of our lives and a future. He promises hope as he did here in Isaiah. We need to put our faith in him that he can do what he said he would do in our lives. He is the mighty God. We put our trust in who he is because he always keeps his promises. And you'll see, he spoke this word to Isaiah about 700 years before Jesus comes. And because of his passion and his zeal that speaks of, he works history and he works circumstances and he works the plans and the schemes of men, and he ensures that he will do what he said he would do. And because he has proven faithful, we can trust who he is. But we also see, and we know from history, that this wasn't just a good idea that God said. We see also that Jesus really came. And the language I've used here is that God will incarnate his promises. He promises that Jesus will come. He promises Emmanuel. But it doesn't just stay in the realm of faith. It doesn't just stay an idea in the spirit. It doesn't just stay a good intention. There was a day in history, more than 2,000 years ago now, where Jesus was really born. And these words that Isaiah spoke to comfort the nation at the time, that also become a prophetic message to generations that came after and to us, Jesus was really born as a child in a manger. And so God is worthy of our trust. And in this Christmas season, we have opportunity to celebrate that God fulfills his promises. He promises to Isaiah that Jesus would come, 
that we will have a wonderful counselor. We will have access through prayer and fellowship to a mighty God, to an everlasting Father who always looks after us and always cares for us, and who is the Prince of Peace. He brings peace in our life because Emmanuel is with us. We stand on this side of history where Isaiah stood before this and saw it coming in the future. We look back and we can see that God keeps his promises. He promised that Jesus would come, and he really did. Just the last scripture from the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 14. I like the Gospel of John, there's, especially chapter 1. There's this sense of wonder in the language that's written there. It's a little bit more perhaps abstract, but I like the way John talks about the coming of Jesus, how John talks about how this promise made through the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before is fulfilled. John chapter 1 and verse 14, John writes and he's reflecting on the life of Jesus and what he has seen. And he calls Jesus the Word. He says, and the Word, Jesus, became flesh. A child was born to us. The Word became flesh. He dwelt among us. He lived this life on the earth and he showed what the Father really was like. He showed what it was to be a wonderful counselor, what it was to be mighty and to do miracles and overcome evil. He showed how much the Father loved us by coming. And he brought peace. And the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we, the disciples, John speaks of here, beheld his glory. Because we see glory when we see God. John goes on and he says, this is the glory of the only begotten of the Father. The only one that God sent. And this glory was full of grace and truth. And so Jesus comes he lives on the earth for us and he brings grace and he brings truth. And so the question for us this morning is who, in whom will you put your trust? I'd like to admonish, I think is a good word this morning, to encourage you to put your trust in the God who keeps his promises. He said through Isaiah hundreds of years before that Jesus would come. Put your trust in the God who keeps his promises, the God who keeps his word, the God who is mighty enough to do everything he said he would do in your life. In whom would you put your trust? Do not be like Ahaz, who went for human understanding and human alliances to accomplish that which they believe God had said. And perhaps that's for some of you, as, as Vanna mentioned from the ministry, Mark, that you've been tested. Who are you going to trust? Are you going to believe what God said? Are you going to trust what God said? Or are you going to try and fulfill that hope that you have through human wisdom and just human, purely human wisdom and human understanding? Now, by saying this, I don't want to dismiss common sense. There's two problems with common sense. First one is common sense is not always so common. Okay. The second one is that common sense always happens in a context. Even if you think of it on a cultural level, there's certain things that are common sense in certain cultures that are just not common sense in other cultures. Common sense happens in a context. And so I'm not calling on you to dismiss wise financial planning or prudence and good human interactions and, and having good strategy. Remember, Jesus is the God can be the extraordinary strategist in your life. But your common sense needs to happen in a context. And that context is the context of faith. That's the context where we put our trust in God. 
And then when he speaks, perhaps it doesn't make natural sense, like when Jesus spoke to his disciples and he said, throw your net in on the other side. These were experienced fishermen. They had common sense. They knew how to run their business. And they'd been trying all night unsuccessfully. And Jesus says, just try on the other side. The common sense happens in the context of faith. In whom will you put your trust at this time? In whom will we put our trust? As families, in whom will we put our trust? As a community of faith, in whom will we put our trust? To accomplish what God has called us to accomplish. And if I may be so bold as to say, as a nation, in whom will we put our trust? And I know there's people here from many nations across the world, many nations in Africa. In whom will your nation put its trust? Okay, I'm not going to give examples because it's just going to get me into trouble. In whom will we put our trust? Let's put our trust this season, in this morning, in the one who can fulfill every good promise that he has made. He promised that Emmanuel would come. We know undisputedly from history that Jesus came. And he was the everlasting father. He was the wonderful counselor. He was the mighty God. And he was the prince of peace. And Jesus can be all thi those things and more. Because there's many other names and attributes and, and qualities that Jesus brings in our lives. But I felt to focus on these this morning. Jesus can be all those things in your life. So can I invite you to stand? And I'm going to pray just a prayer where we commit ourselves to trust God, to trust on His ways and His promises as well. Father, this morning I want to acknowledge that your ways are higher than our ways. You really know what is best. We might only think we know what is good and what is right, but you really know. And so this morning, we, perhaps you've spoken promises to us, Lord. You've given us strategies. You've given us plans for our families and strategies in our businesses and ways to succeed at work and perhaps ways to win loved ones over. We want to acknowledge, Lord, as a community of believers and as your people this morning, that your ways are better. And you always keep your promises. And so therefore, we want to put our trust in you. Give us wisdom that we need. Give us the right kind of common sense and practical applications. And Lord, I pray now, as a prayer of faith over each person standing where they have promises of God in their lives, that just as Jesus became real, just as the Word became flesh, and the words you've spoken over each of our lives, I trust that they will translate into reality. I trust that those promises will become incarnational, that God would be with us in our lives and through our lives. Lord, I believe also there's some people here who they're your answer to others. And I pray, Lord, you help them to trust you for the right strategies, the right plans and purposes to accomplish which, that which you have planned, the good things you have planned for other people's lives. So Lord, I pray just this benediction in closing for each one. May the God of hope fill you 
with all joy and peace as you trust him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we invite you through your spirit to work in us and through us to accomplish what you have planned for our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.